You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mutant strains of coronavirus inflicting serious economic damage in Europe. Meanwhile, the Brazilian stock market crashed today and the real tumbles with it. And lastly, how are rising yields going to impact risk assets? For all of this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision Managing Editor Ed Harrison. Ed, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Jack. Great to talk to you as always on Monday. That's our day here. Absolutely. Let's make a habit out of it. So, Ed, the, today uh, the U.S. yield curve continued to steepen. Um, the 10-year and the 30-year rose apace. Uh, the 30-year is now about the 2.18 level, and the 10-year is uh, about 1.36. What do you make of all this? Yeah, so I think it's very interesting because I had technical analyst Katie Stockton on. If you recall, I believe that was a week ago on Thursday, uh, so 10 days ago, 11 days ago, and she was talking about 114.25 as a resistance level that we had problems breaking above. And as you know, intraday, we had broken to 118, 119. But what she was saying is if you had two Friday closes, that is two week closes above that level, 114.25, and that was a, 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 a technical indicator for her that we were moving to the top of a range between one and 150. We started the year at 90 basis points. We moved from uh, a range from 50 to 100 into a range now from one to one, 150. We'd only been in the bottom half of that range, but then after uh, she gave that, uh, that signal, we did in fact close above 114.25. And immediately, uh, you know, the 10 year just went ballistic, the long and the curve, both 10 and 30, were probably 20 basis points above where we were when she made that call. And so the next stop, I believe, is 150. And, and so, you know, what we're seeing in the markets is reflective of people's angst about those yields going higher. Absolutely, uh, Ed. And just to give this, uh, some numbers behind uh, the narrative, it's not just been that the, the yield has suffered. This has uh, caused damage in investment grade as well as high yield debt. So LQD, which is the investment grade ETF, lost $7.4 in outflows over the past few weeks. And JNK lost uh, $1 billion, uh, flowed out of JNK. And meanwhile, uh, TLT, which is the ETF for long duration treasury assets, 20 years and above, that now has a short interest that's above 15%, which is where it was uh, in 2018, the highest it's been since, since uh, 2018. So, Ed, uh, could you just really quickly give me and the viewers at home a framework of how when yields rise on the long end of the curve, I'm talking 10s, 20s, 30s, how does that impact uh, the risk asset landscape? I'm talking growth equities, I'm talking value equities, I'm talking investment grade, high yield, leveraged loans. Ed, I, I love how I, uh, I gave you an impossible question, and I told you, <laughs> I said, quickly, give me in 15 seconds or less. But So take as much time as you like, but what are you thinking in terms of that? Yeah, so basically, uh, it's the, the yield on long-term treasuries. 
are the yields that people use to discount in the future. That means that when you think of a risk-free rate, you're thinking about U.S. Treasury bonds, and you look at it across the curve. If you're looking for longer duration assets, then you're looking at the longer end of the curve, the 10-year, the 20, the 30, as you were talking about. So when those rates are going up, what it's telling you is that those discount rates are going up so that the future cash flows that you're going to get 10, 20, 30 years down the line are, relatively speaking, uh, less valuable than they would have been otherwise. And given how low the yields were, 50 basis points, now moving up to 140 basis points, that's a huge differential in terms of that discount rate. So if you are, say, Nikola, which is making no money now, but supposedly is going to make you know gobs of money 10 or 20 years from now, that means that that money that they're making, that cash flow that they supposedly are going to have 10 to 20 years hence, is worth much less than it was when Treasury yields were at 50 basis points. And this is true uh, no matter what kind of long-lived asset that you're looking at. It's also true that when you look at junk or you look at investment grade, that they're basing off of treasuries as well in the sense that there's a spread uh, that you're paying for in terms of default risk for those companies. And even if that spread doesn't increase, if treasury yields increase, then those bond yields have to increase as well, everything else being equal. Okay, great. Uh, so it's very bad for growth, um, less so for value, but basically it's, it's bad for risk assets uh, across the spectrum. And, and uh, so now, Ed, I want to take that framework that you just laid out, and I'm going to say, a, a few, a, you know, compared to the price action of the day. So today, NASDAQ was down 2%. Meanwhile, uh, the Dow Jones was actually in the green. And um, there's actually a chart that I made that I was fascinated by, which is the uh, relative change in the NASDAQ, the daily percentage change minus the daily percentage of the uh, Dow Jones. Um, and basically, this is... Uh, you know, one of the over the past year, it's the top five in terms of the overperformance of the Dow Jones relative to the Nasdaq. So you had those tech-heavy, uh, long-duration Nasdaq assets bleeding today. Meanwhile, your Dow Jones stocks, um, which is you know comprised of your industrials as well as your you know your more your your stocks that have a lower duration, generally, um, was was in the green. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, let me just say that uh, you you're like the chart master, okay? Because uh, pe people who don't know this, you're coming up with these charts on your own. That is a great chart, the one that you just talked about. Uh, so hats off to you for looking at that. And I think that it definitely portrays the action that we're talking about today really well, because what it shows you is is, is that. Uh, people rotating into those plays where there's more cash flow up front versus those that have more long-lived cash flows. You know, I told, talked about Nikola. You know, you were talking about Tesla, tech stocks, growth stocks. All of those companies that are in the NASDAQ, those are going to get walloped if interest rates continue to rise more relative to energy, as an example, where mm. you're just making tons of money today and potentially you won't even make any money in the future if we have a, a green energy future. So that's the, the dichotomy that we're seeing. Absolutely, Ed, I'm so glad you brought that up. So I mentioned we mentioned the NASDAQ was down 2%. Uh, within that, Tesla down 5.6%, Moderna down 6%, DocuSign and Peloton down 7%. So it's really those growthy names 
that are getting battered today. And then compare that to oil, uh, which, as you mentioned, is on an absolute ride. It's now uh, well above $61. And the XLE, which is an ETF uh, for uh, oil stocks, is up 4%. All of the stocks in XLE are up. Uh, Marathon Oil up 10% today. So this isn't a joke. These energy names are on fire. And, and likewise, in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, we see some travel and leisure stocks like IAG, EasyJet, uh, Wizz Air, all up 5 to 7%. Carnival Cruises up 8.7%. So today was an ultimate day for value. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you had two trends that you were talking about there that I thought were interesting. Uh, you you can actually call it three trends. The one is is this rotation trade. The second is what we're seeing in energy and commodities, more generally speaking. That is, is that right now uh, people are talking about reflation. Uh, they're also seeing what's happening in Texas or what did happen in Texas. And that's having uh, some supply shocks. And as a result, energy is going to do well. So that those are two things that are happening based upon the, that data. Uh, then the third thing that's happening, I thought that was interesting, is the differential in what's going on in the UK or even the US for that matter and what's happening in Europe. If you look at any charts in terms of vaccinations uh, so far, I mean, the UK is way ahead relative to Europe. I think they have something like 28 percent of their population that's received some sort of vaccination versus 6% for the EU, which is ridiculously low by comparison. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, he came out with a statement today saying that we are going to open up completely by June. So that means normal life in June, which means all those companies that you're talking about in the UK, they're going to actually get a fill up economically almost you know, three or four months from now, whereas in Europe, we have no idea when those com- the, the equivalent companies are going to get a fill-up. Mm, yeah, Ed, uh, that chart which I saw today on credit write-downs comparing the vaccination rate of the United Kingdom to the EU, it is very stark, as you mentioned. What is behind that disparity where the UK is getting 26 27% vaccinated and EU is laggard with barely, you know, not even 6% vaccinated? Yeah, a lot of that has to do with, uh, uh, you know, bureaucracy and red tape. But some of it also has to do with the fact that people are very concerned in the EU about the vaccines, their efficacy, the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular, which is one that was shown to not be as effective against mild forms of the coronavirus uh, in South Africa, the South African variant. And the South African variant the British variant of the coronavirus have become uh, uh, ones that are just going around very much in Europe, Spain, as an example, uh, France, another place. And so the the result is that people are concerned that they can still get the coronavirus given those results, and they're not really as excited to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, you know, there are a lot of bottlenecks in the process in Europe right now, and they've just done a horrible job all around. Bureaucratically, uh, they've done a poor job in terms of, uh, you know, telling their people about the efficacy. For instance, in Scotland, they found that it was something like 94 percent effective at keeping people out of the hospital. That is the AstraZeneca vaccine, even more effective than the Pfizer vaccine. So what that means is, is if people get vaccinated, they're not going to go to hospital, which is really what you care about more than the fact that they, uh, you know, they got a mild form of coronavirus. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mm. Ed, I want to uh, dive into this because you're an expert on Europe and you follow the coronavirus and, and the relating news very closely. So when it comes to coronavirus in Europe, you are a very informed person. Um, so I want to ask you more about that. Uh, but, but let's actually take a break and let's go to Weston Nakamura. Um, today, Ed, I don't know if you know this, but the, the Brazilian stock market uh, has tumbled. It has essentially crashed um, today um, based on some news regarding uh, the oil company Petrobras. So let's go to Weston uh, Nakamura to hear what's going on. Weston, welcome back to The Daily Briefing. How are you doing? Pretty good, Jack. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Weston, last time uh, you were on The Daily Briefing, last Wednesday, uh, you came on to talk about a potential whiplash that you saw uh, in the S&P based on some of the plumbing that you were uh, researching in within the, the VIX futures markets. How is that playing out? Yeah, this is basically, so you're getting, you know, a pretty, I guess, sharp somewhat sharp pullback in uh, NASDAQ, especially uh, today. Um, and it's very much VIX led. Um, so you have the all time highs last week on the eve of the VIX expiry that I was talking about. And then that you know front month rolled off. And then you have now spot VIX um, trading more in line with the uh, March VIX, which is now higher. And that's been pulling the, uh, the market down. So, you know, just Basically, this you know the continuation of that. My only worry is that if there's too much, um, again, if there's if there's a lot of inflow going into um, the UVXY and these other VIX-related ETFs that are forced to buy VIX futures, when it comes time to roll, you know, I mean, they they might be stuck in a position where they're going to have to they're going to be spreading the front month and the uh, second month uh, VIX contracts, you know, and and therefore impacting the the overall index, but. Um, but yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Right. And uh, so now, uh, now that that expiry has has arrived, uh, about half of the cash balance or, or the value, the net asset value of UVXY is in that March contract, and then some else is sprinkled on 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 the other contracts. I was just looking at the uh, UVXY now. Um, how do you think that that will evolve? Um, uh, and and we, we, what are you seeing in the VIX term structure? Basically, basically, Weston, you came on last week, you made a good call. What are you seeing going forward? I mean, I look. I, I think that the that second month, front month VIX spread really does matter to the direction of the index. The more that spread compresses, because it got unnaturally extremely wide, as uh, you know, I showed in my chart, um, and when that kind of corrects back towards more normal levels, where they don't, the prices aren't so far deviated from one another, um, that compression is going to lead to a downward pull in the S and P uh, cash index. So as long as that happens, you know, that's go going forward because you don't have a role or anything coming up. We just had one. So, you know, that's, I see down downside because of that. But all right. So I'll quiet on the fight, Western right? front for now. Let's move into something that's a little bit more volatile, uh, something that's about to get the, the blood pumping a little bit. Um, today, <laughs> Weston, you, you messaged me quite early in the morning uh, that Brazil, uh, the Brazilian markets had opened uh, up in, deeply in the red. Um, the the uh, MSCI Brazil index uh, down as much as five percent. 
uh, other indices down. Uh, the real down against the dollar, uh, about two and a half, three percent. Um, yeah. What do you make of that, Weston? Yeah, that's that's pretty big. Um, so basically, what happened was over the weekend, uh, Bolsonaro had fired uh, the uh, CEO of Petrobras, which is the you know the state-run Brazil oil company, and this is a chief executive who is uh, you know University of Chicago educated and all that, and he's very much so a free markets person. And Bolsonaro had a problem with, you know, his, I mean, his ratings have been um, plummeting because of mishandling COVID. Uh, you have truck drivers in Brazil who are, um, you know, striking, and he obviously wants his ratings up. And he was blaming a lot of that on oil prices heading ever higher and, and fuel prices. And he was basically telling the, you know, Petrobras to like, you need to cut, you know, you need to, to lower oil prices. The uh, the CEO saying, you know, no, I'm not gonna. This is this is not you know this is not a dictatorship, right? And well, apparently it's a dictatorship because he's no longer there. And um, and then come uh, yeah, come futures open today, you have um, the market sell off at what five percent, five and a half percent down um, for the Abu Vespa index futures. Mm -hmm. You have yeah, two and a half percent on the real is pretty big. It broke through a key level. Mind you, the real was already the worst performing currency last year. This is against the weakening dollar at that too, and against even yeah. like the, the lira, which is a which is a horrendous situation um, with the currency crisis. Um, so they were already, you know, it's already like um, capital flight happening. And but now I think that um, the reason you're seeing such a significant sell-off, and the reason I don't think that this is going to be some sort of bounce back, is because Bolsonaro has lost the trust of foreign capital flows for an investment. You know, like when you capital leaves when capitalism leaves is what I said in my note, right? Um, mm -hmm. So if you go to the exchange, you can see my, my note on this. But basically, that's, you know, that's what it comes down to. It's you can't repair that if that is really the, you know, the damage that's being done to the investor psyche, you cannot repair that overnight. And, you know, so many people just came into Brazil, so many flows came into Brazil, you know, two, three years ago, because Bolsonaro was supposed to be this very pro- uh, you know, pro pro market, um, pro business sort of agenda, and now if he's kind of you know pulling the the strings and and picking and choosing, you know, it, like as you know, like some activist investor, <laughs> right? Um, well, that's not good, and investors are not going to like that. And I think that also at a time when you have these, you know, I mean, I think it's arguably. Fair to say that equity valuations are rather lofty right now, but it's very some tough for that. fund managers. Yeah, yeah some could say, um, but it's tough to sell. If you're going to sell something down, uh, you know this is a this is a perfect idiosyncratic sort of situation. If you want to sell down like a, a major global uh, index, is is Brazil. So I think that the real and uh, the um, Vespa index are going to probably take a pretty sustained beating, um, and e. WZ, which is the iShares ETF, uh, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give a little bit of context there, Weston, there's a lot to unpack. So first, as you mentioned, uh, the Brazilian real has had a horrible 2020 uh, against the dollar. Uh, and by the way, the, the, it's not in the DXY or the US dollar index. <laughs> uh, and, and that is why you know the, it's, the dollar has, has been a fantastic currency relative to the Brazilian real. But you'd never know, because it's not in the dollar index, which is always quoted. Um, secondly, I just like to 
say that in the EWZ, the, the, the uh, Brazil ETF, um, the largest stock that the stock that is down by most is by far Petrobras, which is the, the stock that's involved. Uh, the, both the common and the preferred are down about 19.7, 19.8 uh, just today. Uh, and those stocks command about 6% and 4.5% uh, respectively within uh, EWZ. But we're also seeing some uh, bleeding that's um, not with not not Petrobras, other companies. Um, so, uh, I mean, even even crude, yeah. crude, oil, crude oil is up 3% today, you know, so that's, that should tell you enough, even directly, right? So this is an oil company and it's down 20% on a day that crude is rallying. Yeah, so absolutely. Clearly, Absolutely. So, so Weston, um, how how do you chart your your thesis going forward? Is it a fundamental thesis that you think that these stocks uh, will be, if not nationalized, then uh, have the heavy hand of government? Uh, yeah, on I don't the think, risk. Go ahead. No, I, 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 yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying there's there's, there's no nationalism or anything, anything like that going on. I, I think Bolsonaro um, explicitly tried to make that clear that like this is not you know um, any sort of a top-down, like, heavy-handed thing, I just don't like the guy. <laughs> he's, just, he's just not helpful for Brazil. That sounds like a top-down, heavy-handed thing, right? You're picking and choosing what you're to your own political agenda because you need because you want to get your ratings higher. And and investors are not going to stand for that. And so when you have um, a, when you have a, an index that's already down year-to-date as it is, you know, I mean, if you look at EWZ's fund flows even, They've been kind of trickling in. There's not too much enthusiasm for fund flows when uh, going into EWZ, but when they flow out, they flow out like they they really you know um, head for the hills, um, as was the case for uh, the March sell off last year, and then you know a few a few weeks uh, following. So people are happy to pull money out of Brazil very quickly, it seems. And mm -hmm. you know I don't play them. The thing the thing is that because with these currencies, and I, I have a I have a video uh, called. Um, I, on the exchange as well about you know explaining the dollar. I think um, it's like what what is the dollar? Something very very straightforward like that. But basically what what I'm what I'm saying is that you know uh, currencies are interesting because their cur currencies are pair trades, right? Like you can't just buy just the dollar. You can't bet on just the dollar. Like the dollar strengthening, the dollar weakening. Dollar weakening versus what? Dollar strengthening versus what? Right? So people just talk about the dollar like it's some some sort of um, you know singular uh, instrument that you could be traded. No, it's not. It's a it's a it's a currency. It's a pair trade. It's a dollar versus the yen, or so, so on and so forth. When it comes to the real, the Turkish lira, and the ruble, it isn't. You know, when those currencies move, when it's like USD BRL, USD TRY, or USD RUB, the USD part really has nothing to do with it. It really is a hundred percent whatever Turkey is doing, aka whatever you know Erdogan's doing, or whatever Putin's doing, or whatever in this case Bolsonaro is doing. So um, when you see currencies, um, the currency pairs uh, um, move, especially in times of COVID, what makes it interesting is that currencies are the market's reflection of relative government competency. Sometimes is how I kind of look at it. So COVID is like this pop quiz that got sprung out onto society, onto, onto every country. And it's like, you figure out how to deal with this with your given resources, with your given economies, with your given political systems, everyone gets the same pop quiz. And the markets believe that apparently last year in 2020, Brazil had one of the worst managed, uh, you know, COVID pop quiz results as uh, expressed through USD BRL. 
And Weston, lastly, how are you thinking about putting on this trade? Um, well, I'm assuming that most people can't really trade, you know, the Brazilian, the local index um, futures, but you can you can trade EWZ um, or you can short the real against the, the dollar. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would just be just go. You could go long the USD BRL uh, or you can I would say you could buy puts on EWZ, but implied volatility is kind of high. So uh i don't think really that means it's a crowded trade that means a lot of people want to do what you want to do um yeah I, I guess so i mean it wasn't you know yeah i guess it, i think that i i think that the index is basically just gonna you know it, it fell a lot today and it's just gonna it's not gonna have this rebound rally um but that doesn't really put in you know a, a 25 delta out of money put like in the money so you're just going to you know, you're just going to bleed away your your implied volatility uh, premium. So, um, I would say that if you you know if you want to if you want to short an index, a global index, because you can't really do that anywhere else, this is the one to do it. Um, uh, you know, it's it's tough to do it on the S and P. It's obviously tough to do on you know Nikkei or whatever else. So, uh, but this one, I I think that foreigners are are going to be gone, and I don't think that they're coming back anytime soon. Very interesting trade. Uh, Weston, thank you, as always, for coming on the daily briefing and sure. uh, uh, sharing your insights. Sure. Uh, I just uh, I encourage everyone to just go to my um, page on the exchange. Um, it's just a short Brazil trade and uh, is the title of my of my um, trade idea. And let's have a discussion about it. If you disagree, please come on the exchange. Tell me where I'm wrong. And let's figure this out. Thanks, Weston. All right. So, Ed, we're back with you. We were talking about Europe, and I want to read uh, a quote from your blog, Credit Write-Downs, today. Um, so not only is the double dip for Europe already baked into the cake, now we also have to fear another wave because of the poor policy response. So we talked about the virus, but can you put that in context, in the context of uh, the fiscal and monetary and economic woes of Europe that, that you've been um, following over these last few months? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, so basically, Europe, uh, they went into lockdowns much more than the United States. When you look at the data, the data is saying that Europe was in a double-dip recession. They're still in that double-dip recession now. The thing that people care about is this foot race between these variants, you know, the Brazilian variant, the South African, the UK variant, which are these mutated variants that are more virulent, uh, and and the vaccine. The, the quicker you roll out the vaccines, the more likely you are to not have any problems with those variants. Europe, obviously, they're not rolling out the vaccines very quickly, and they're already in lockdown. Those two, they're not a very good combination. And so as a result, the economic pain will be greater. Then when economic pain is greater, you put the money into uh, deficit spending within the individual Eurozone states. As an example, Italy has a 160% uh, government debt to GDP number, which is the same amount that Greece had when they defaulted 
uh, all those years ago during the European sovereign debt crisis. As we speak, in fact, the EU is looking to take the Stability and Growth Pact, which says you have to have 3% deficits, 60% debt to GDP, or uh, going down to that number. And they're going to say, okay, because of the pandemic, we're going to give you guys a pass. But once the pandemic's over, there's not going to be any more free ride. There are going to be no more passes. These countries are not monetarily sovereign. It's not like Mario Draghi, who's now the head of the government in Italy, can go to his tree and pick off some uh, some lira, or you know, ask the uh, the uh, the Bank of Italy to uh, finance the deficits that he wants to create in order to keep things going in the Italian economy. He can't do that, and so. What it means is you have a reckoning. Uh, you have a reckoning on the fiscal front. You have a reckoning on the growth front as a result of that, which means that Europe potentially could underperform for a longer period of time because of austerity, or you're going to get some sort of monetization. And that monetization is going to create political strife like you've never seen, at least not since the European sovereign debt crisis. So. The pandemic is setting us up for big problems once it's over from a fiscal perspective in Europe. Oh, that's interesting. Ed, you mentioned uh, a lot of challenges that Europe is going to face. Is one of them the fact that yields are already so low, in many cases negative, so there's just not much more that the ECB can do? Or is that a roadblock or is, that, is it not? Is that, is that a, a, a you know, commonly uh, held mistake, mistaken view? Well, you know, I mean, for Italy, it's great that uh, the yields are low because as long as the ECB has its back, then its yields can be low. They're not negative the way that they are in Germany, uh, but they're mildly positive, which is good uh, for the Italian state because Italy, therefore, uh, doesn't have as much debt service problem as it otherwise would have. But ultimately, uh, it's the spread to German bunds which are going to be the big problem. Eventually, you know, the potential for default or redenomination risk is going to rise, and people are going to say, wait a minute, uh, do we really want to be holding this Italian debt? Is the ECB going to have their back? Uh, and so then there's the potential that the ECB, it, you know, it, it's a critical juncture in the same way that the Fed has to decide how far are we going to let yields rise? The equivalent is true for the ECB. How far are we going to let Italian yields rise? That will eventually be the question. And I think that uh, we're going to see that play out once the pandemic is over. Mm. Uh, Ed, I'm glad that you brought the Fed back back into it, because let's go let's go back to the U.S. Um, and to you, I, I know one of your favorite phrases is when the rubber hits the road. Um, I'm looking at the, the high yield yield to worst and relative to the investment grade yield to worst, and I'm barely seeing an uptick. It's, it's so small, I have to go closer to my screen to see it. And it's you know where yields were three weeks ago, essentially. Um, in, in October, yields were criminally low, and now they're much, much, much lower than they are now. So I'm not really seeing a, that pickup in high yield investment grade. Uh, the only really thing that I am seeing in it is in the 30-year mortgage rate, and that's because I think uh, you know, it is a 30 year, so it has a 30 year duration. Um, so where do you think the rubber hits the road with investment grade and high yield? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, where does the rubber hit the road in terms of where do you cry uncle first uh, because of rates going up? I mean, I think there are four markets that you could look at at this point. 
One is obviously the equity markets where, you know, we're very leveraged to growth in the United States. That's one of the reasons that the U.S. has outperformed. The S&P has been a much better place if you want to have growth. Second is high yield. Third is leveraged loans. And then fourth, I would say, are mortgages. All four of those are susceptible to yields going up. And of course, just like with Italy, you have the double whammy in uh, in uh, the United States with junk and with corporates because there's a spread. You know, uh, there's a spread because of default risk. So if yields go up, not only will the yields go up, but the spread will go up. Same thing for Italy. If uh, yields in Europe go up, then not only will Italian yields go up, but the spread to bunts will go up. So they're doubly hit by that. Uh, so when the cycle turns down, all of those things can happen in the U.S. And so you have to ask yourself, which one are we more leveraged to at this particular point? Uh, the Are we leveraged to the uh, financial conditions that are loose because of uh, growth stocks? Are we leveraged to the uptick in the economy because of housing? Or are we discounting uh, too much that we're at the beginning of a, a, a cycle and not near the end of a cycle from the credit perspective. Because to the degree that uh, you see an uptick in yields, it might well be that you, you have a default cycle that uh, causes liquidity problems in those markets, uh, leveraged loans and, and high yield. Mm. Ed, uh, maybe next week we can do a deeper dive on high yield and leveraged loans, because I know you have a lot of experience in that space. It's a space that I'm very interested in. Um, but as we close, before we let the, the audience uh, get on with their lives, I want to uh, show a clip that airs tomorrow. It's of an interview that airs tomorrow with John Hussman and Milton Berg uh, about, are we in a bubble? So uh, mm. let's take a look at this clip, Ed, and then I want to see your reaction. Okay. Do you believe that the equity markets in the United States are in a bubble? Yes. And I, to that, I would say, I do not know. Question number two, do you believe that the Bitcoin uh, uh, asset is a bubble? Yes. I would say to that, yes, as well. Uh, question number three, do you believe that the bond market, the US government bond market is, has been in a bubble? No, uh, but only yes, no answers or- At this point, yeah, and I believe yes. I think the answer to that question is yes. So Ed, what do you think? Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I don't. I don't know whether his uh, husband is gonna. He's gonna get some stick from uh, the uh, the pro crypto crowd here at uh, Real Vision. I thought it was interesting. Milton Berg was talking about bonds or a bubble. Everyone's talking about bonds being a bubble. But let me just tell you. Here's what I'm thinking: that if if we get a crash up, we're gonna get a crash down. It's a, an exact replay of what we saw in 2018, except instead of the Fed engineering the crash up in yields by raising rates four times as they did in 2018, it's the market moving yields higher. At some point, they'll move it high enough that either it draws a reaction from the Fed or something breaks. And so I think that that crash up will mean a crash down in yields, which means that we're not in a bubble, that we still have a, a ways to go before we see yields actually rise on a, a consistent and permanent level in the United States. Mm. Ed, and when you say uh, the, before the Fed does something, are you talking about the yield curve control where the Fed will pin rates on the yield curve and say, if it goes one basis point above this, we're bringing it right back down? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different things that the Fed can do that they've said that they're going to do. 
but the first thing that they need to do is tell us which of those things that they they want to do are the 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 likely response. Uh, but they will respond if uh, financial conditions start to weaken. And I think yes, yield curve control is one of the responses, one of the more likely responses that they'll uh, engineer. Great. Well, uh, thanks, Ed. Uh, I hope, Ed, you get a chance to watch the interview with John Hussman and Milton Berg tomorrow. I hope the audience does uh, as well. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I think uh, I, I've interviewed Milton Berg and I haven't seen John Hussman on the platform, so I'm excited. Yeah, well, he's a subscriber, so this is our first time getting him on uh, the platform on on this side this side of the chair. Um, so, yeah. It's it's um, Ed. It's been great. Uh, thank you as always for uh, sharing your insights and le letting me pick your brain. Um, talk to you next week. Yeah, let's do it again. Great. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.